Okay. Uh, welcome to the Core 77 podcast. I'm your host, Rain No. Today, we're speaking with two designers, both about their careers and the work that they've done for Burning Man through their art collective, which is known as Fold House. On the line, we've got Jesse Silver, Vice President of Product for PAX Labs, and Jorg Student, Executive Design Director at IDEO. Jesse and Jorg, thank you for speaking with us. Of course. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, first off, I wanted to give the listeners an idea of your backgrounds and what led you to where you are today. So, Jesse, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. Uh, what made you pursue product design in the first place, and what was the path that you took to get there? <laughs> so, I, I think I came in from the engineering side. You know, I, I was one of those kids that was always playing with uh, construction sets and building circuits and making crazy contraptions in my room. I remember building a thing where you hit a button and the doors would automatically close. Like that was the kind of childhood I had. And I went to, to school to study engineering. I think I was an electrical engineer at Tufts University uh, for my first year. And then into that, I, you know, you're, you're studying schematics and all these things that are quite useful, but just frankly, for me, not that interesting to do all day long. And I started to wonder kind of what was a softer side of, of engineering I could get into that has more uh, consideration for the human side of the, the equation, like it, which is to say that if there's this thing that you're making, what is the interface that the human actually interacts with it um, from? And so I transferred my major to, to human factors engineering, which is basically half psychology and half engineering. And so that was my uh, foray into more the product design side. I think I'm I'm not quite certainly an industrial designer. I have less kind of aesthetic skills um, and consideration for the form, but I've, I've done a lot more studying of user interface design and, and interactions of human and machine. Okay. And after graduating, can you give us a sort of uh, encapsulation of your career from uh, graduation to date? Yeah, I, I led a, a somewhat meandering path, which I think is not that unusual for, for product people. Uh, so I, I became a recording engineer in Sausalito for a bit because I've been in a recording group in, in, um, in college. And even that, if you think about it, is an interesting engineering skill that's about half art and half engineering. And so it appealed to me for that reason. Uh, then I became a, a, a programmer at a design firm in San Francisco, actually a prominent uh, branding firm at the time, and uh, ended up going to the uh, product design master's program at Stanford uh, to um, to kind of change my career up a little bit. I found that coding and kind of developing wasn't quite um, fulfilling my need to build and make things. Uh, and I ended up at, at IDEO after that, IDEO, the, the worldwide design consultancy. And that's where I met Jörg and um, designed and, and led projects there for about five years and, um, you know, met a lot of creative, wonderful people and also took advantage of the, the skills that they had and, and what they could teach me in terms of how to build things in the shop and how to, how to think about product design. Um, from there, I, I went to a digital healthcare consult, uh, adult, excuse me, digital healthcare company called Omada Health, where I was VP product for four years. And now I, uh, design and, and lead the engineering of, uh, very high end cannabis technologies at PAX Labs. Uh, you weren't kidding. That's quite the route. You're, what about you? What was the path that you took? Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Let me back up. What was it that made you pursue product design in the first place? And what was the path you took to get there? Um, you know, as a kid and, and young adult, I always liked building things and making things. And I was really into art. Um, I didn't really know much about design, but I knew how to, you know, like build things with my hands and figure things out. And so when I, when it came to studying, I thought, uh, engineering was more my thing. So I went to study aerospace engineering and uh, uh, realized uh, sort of like in the middle of, of that, that it's not um, allowing me to 
you know, aerospace engineering, you like the, the projects are take years and years, if not decades to design a new plane or new jet engine or something like that. And, and I realized, uh, that I want to be, you know, more hands on and quicker projects and, uh, and that I'm missing the, the really the creative aspect. And so after aerospace engineering, I uh, went to study a design at the RCA in London. And that took me uh, to IDEO and, and I've been at IDEO ever since. So not, not much more straightforward path than Jesse, I would say. <laughs> Jesse, I'm going to throw the ball back to you for a moment. Uh, at this point, how long have you been in the sort of design game and what is your area of focus? So I, you know, that's an interesting question because I think over the years, design maybe went from the design with an uppercase D where people thought of design as kind of the aesthetic visual aspect of something, whether it be a physical object or a space uh, or, or even, um, you know, interiors and art, things like that. And I think there was a time, you know, maybe a decade or two where it started transitioning more, certainly in the public realm, people acknowledged it more as the kind of the lowercase d design, like design thinking and the design of what something is and what a system is and how it operates rather than necessarily just the outside part that you see. Not, not that, not to diminish the, the earlier part, but I think there was a transition of what design meant. And so I'm not sure I've ever really been the uppercase d designer. I, I do make, furniture and I, I build this Burning Man art, but I, I, I think about things in the kind of an engineering sense. And even at IDEO, my discipline was product design, which is different from industrial design. I, I'm, I'm typically involved in the, the very early projects where you're literally figuring out what the thing is. Like, what is the thing? What is the service? What is the experience? You're, there's, there's not any actually of the uppercase D design skills really um, exhibit at that time. So I think I'm more of a design thinker. I solve problems. I invent things. I think really carefully about what the experience should be. Um, and then, you know, I don't actually have the aesthetic design skills, but I'm pretty good at thinking about it, about a journey and uh, the interaction of a person and the, and the system that we're building. Okay. And presumably you enjoy that uh, sort of front end involvement as opposed to being the guy who's working out, I don't know, uh, mold housings and radii and things like that. Is that correct? Well, I kind of enjoy going between both. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that that's part of why I can be effective in the, the jobs that I have is I, I can speak enough of the language and software and hardware and manufacturing um, and, uh, and tie that together with kind of the, the journey that we're trying to create. And that, that's actually what I do in my current job. I, I oversee all of those different groups. Um, so I enjoy all of it. I, I certainly am not the person you want doing the tooling, the hard <laughs> tooling for the, for the molds or, or designing the circuit board, but I can have conversations with those people and understand the trade-offs that we're, that we're making. Um, and in fact, for Fold House, that's part of what I like is I get to, I get to actually make those things. I get to make the circuit boards and I get to, design the wiring harnesses and do all those things that probably you shouldn't have me do for a real production product. But, um, you know, at Foldhouse, we all get to try these things and, and get better at them and learn from other people. And so that's, that's one of the, the things I like about kind of um, reaching and being as ambitious about our projects as we are. And we're going to touch on Foldhouse in just a moment. But York, first, I wanted to ask you the same question uh, about how long have you been in the design game for and what's your area of focus? So at, at IDEO, I, um, I work in a very similar, I, I used to work in a very similar way as uh, Jesse. So we used to make the difference between industrial design and product design. Industrial design is what 
um, the world out there um, like knows at at design or as product design and and, and product design is uh, is a discipline that essentially came out of the Stanford Design Program, which was uh, people with a, a very diverse background who um, know how to problem solve and how to like you know identify the 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 issue and uh, but not necessarily are the ones like designing the the aesthetic design or or the 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 final engineering and and i'm i'm somewhere in that land so i i do probably do um more of the the later mechanical engineering than than jesse used to do um, when he was here um but i also did the the upfront stuff what my um design career really started i really started to learn about design when i went to rca to study before i knew what art was and what engineering was and and there i I got to understand what what it means uh, to design for people and uh and that's what uh at ideo i came became really good in and um uh fold house uh is a little bit of a different story because there we don't have to design for people. We can, it's more like the, the mix between art and engineering. But I assume you'll ask me about that or ask about that later. Um, actually, I'm going to ask about that right now. It's question number three. Uh, tell us about Foldhouse. So um, Foldhouse really started um, when Jesse, well, Jesse had been going to Burning Man for many years and uh, Jesse was actually leading a project that I was part of when I was expressing some interest in in Burning Man and he uh, gave us a rundown of what it means to go there and there's actually a lot of things that you need to figure out. You need to build a, you know, the first thing you need is like you need to build a shade structure. You need to, um, because it's really hot there, you need to bring all your equipment, you bring all your tools, you need to be really well prepared otherwise you'll be you can't buy anything there and so we um, uh, in my first year um, we you know inspired by Jesse it's Jesse's um, description of how hot it is and what you need we designed a um, like an origami yurt essentially for our camp 10 people so we could uh, just stay cool and then uh, the year after our camp grew and we had to build a bigger shade structure and so we built uh, like this uh, horrendous tower um, that was really unsafe but uh, safe survived and, and we realized that um, when you build big things, people want to help, not people just who are, contrib- who are camping with you, but in general, people want to build things. And so we had a bunch of people involved in, in, in building that structure and preparing that, cutting all the pieces in, in the shop at IDEO. And the year after we built another structure and people helped again. And then we realized, you know, it's, it's stupid to build these big structures that we then essentially burn afterwards. Uh, we want to create something that um, has a little bit of a more lasting um, impact. And so uh, we had other people join who were really good in LEDs and programming and and mechanical engineering. And so that's when we started uh, to do our first official art project, which was Bloom and Lumen. And that's when we officially founded Foldhouse. So before it was just a bunch of people uh, wanting to build things and and 
yeah, a little community to create things. And just to back up for a moment, Jesse, what was it that initially drew you to Burning Man? Uh, you know what's funny is it was the... <laughs> It, it, it was a bunch of other things that filled in the spaces from what I heard. So let, let me explain this. So when, when you hear about Burning Man, I think, I mean, these days it's different because there's YouTube and there's, you know, a lot more public consciousness about what Burning Man is. But I, I started going, I think, 13 years ago. And certainly there, you know, people have been going for, for decades. So that's, that's not a long time compared to those people. But, you know, at, at that time, there was no YouTube that you could go and look at videos. And so you were relying on some people's like actual film photos of what it was like and then their descriptions. And so even at the time, you know, people talked about it as this being this amazing dances and yes, there's some drugs and there's some craziness. And, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of an introvert. Like I don't like big crowds of people. I avoid events that are like that in general. I know to never go to music concerts. And so, uh, I, I, it kind of took a while for me to hear enough of a description that there were, there was this crazy art scene there also and that it was just this really, free place to be. And that's what started to make it compelling for me. And I had just decided to change my life over. I'd been a developer at this worldwide branding firm, not, not IDEO, but a branding firm, um, and was about to go to grad school, change up my life, become a product designer. That summer, I got looped into this camp and it was like, you know what? I'm doing a bunch of stuff I would never do. Let's go try this. And I think the reason I loved it was it was actually nothing like what had been described to me. Um, because there's, there's almost any, experience you want available to you. And so that actually makes it really hard to describe. It's like coming back from a full-fledged city and having someone explain what it is to you. Well, their experience is going to be dependent on whether they went to go see museums or they went hiking or they met a bunch of friends at a bar. Like whatever they did now becomes their description of what that city's like. And so I had to kind of have an, enough contact with people that, that had the kind of things that I wanted, that was interested in to, to make it appeal to me. And then, of course, when I came back, I talked to people like Jurg and a bunch of other friends and said, you know, there's a lot of other things that happen at Burning Man, but there's this really cool art and design thing going on. And we all like to build stuff. You know, that's like a way you get into it. And there's almost like a, a, a slight obligation because you're going to go and experience all these wonderful things that people built for you for free. And so the obligation is that you now return whatever your skill set is and whatever your experience that you can share with them is. And so for us, that's building things and having people enjoy um, seeing them or playing with them or, or just kind of experiencing them. Sure. Uh, and Burning Man uh, famously has 10 principles of which one is, of course, the sort of um, uh, building things for others that you'd mentioned. I'll just read off the uh, principles as they list them. Uh, the 10 principles being radical inclusion, gifting, decommodification, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, leaving no trace, participation, and immediacy. Now, as attendees, presumably the both of you are adherents of all 10 while you're there, but are there any of those 10 in particular that resonate with you? I think when, when I think of full towers, they, they embody all 10 of them, I would say. And uh, the, the aspect that I got to love the most is um, involve the community or what, what, whatever that point was. Um, because um, with build, make, doing our projects for Burning Man, we're building community before Burning Man. There's a lot of people that help build the art that don't even go to Burning Man, but they meet every weekend and, uh, you know, create things together. And uh, they they learn different skills, they, they get to practice skills they've, they haven't used in a while. And, and then when we are out there 
we're building this, we're spending days and nights together building this thing. And that really, um, that, that really helps us bond and, and, and feel the sense, yeah, we're full towers. And, and, and then, and then once the art is up, uh, people come and, and get to enjoy it and, and they feel part of it. So, so that, that aspect is probably the one that I'm, um, the most excited about. Yeah, I think it, it bears mentioning that, you know, Fold House is all volunteers, Jurgen and I included. Um, and so, you know, you heard that we, we both have full-time jobs or, or more than full-time jobs. And so it, it's, it, it's obviously a volunteer thing for us that we do on the side and, and we are just two of the people that help lead it. But there's a, there's a handful of other people that, that lead it as well. Plus, um, you know, up to let's say 50 or 60 or 70 other people that actually volunteer and make these projects a reality. So when your talks about, you know, building community, like that, that is a real, a real thing. There's 50, 60, 70 of us building a project. And then Burning Man is just kind of the show in a way. Like that's when you show off the piece, but most, not most, I mean, almost all of the work happens uh, before you even get there. And that's when really like we rely on community because none of us could build any of these things by ourselves, not even, not even by a long shot. Yeah. They, are. The, those, those cultures are so complex that, um, you know, somebody needs to really know how to, um, how to design the PCB. Somebody re- really needs to know how to calculate the stress on, on a, on a 50 foot tall structure with, with people on it. Um, somebody needs to understand the electrical and somebody needs to understand, you know, like the LEDs and, and what it takes to design in the desert. So, so there's like a, a core team of, of maybe 10, 15 people who all have different skills, who, who, who lead, lead that particular effort. And then there's all these volunteers. We actually counted, um, over 90 people helping last year with our piece. It's incredible that you're able to marshal so many volunteers, particularly when some of them are not even going to go and get to see the final thing in its final setting. Um, how do you inspire these people to join? What is the, what is the mission? So, you know, it's interesting. It started uh, with our first installation, Bloom and Lumen, where for the most part, there were really five or actually seven of us building and doing the, the campaign for Kickstarter and, uh, and, and like engineering everything. And then we, fig- we realized, okay, now, uh, first of all, people were asking us, hey, what are you doing? Can I help? Uh, which was great. And then, and then when we did the Kickstarter campaign, that really, you know, opens up to everybody and, and everybody gets to see what we're actually doing. And then, uh, and then we needed people to help us assemble everything. And, uh, and that's the first time when I realized, wow, I expected the years before it was mostly people who want to go to Burning Man who helped. And there it was just people who were interested to be part of something bigger and want to do something cool. And, and, um, we had maybe at some point, I think for Bloom Loom, we had up to 30 people come and those were mostly recruited out of IDEO, to be honest, <laughs> because we were building everything at IDEO and Palo Alto. And, uh, and then, uh, after Burning Man, we brought the flowers to different events. There were the Treasure Island Music Festival. There were at different festivals in like one was, uh, I mean, 15, we did 15 different events and they ended up in a museum and in a private collection now, but, but that gave us a lot of exposure and, and excitement from people. And when we did our second art piece, the origami mushrooms called shroom and lumen, we suddenly had a lot more people interested in, in helping us. 
And that particular art piece, uh, we required every day, at least 12 people, like every weekend, at least 12 people to be there to, to fold the, the plastic because we couldn't have folded it with like two or three people. It, it needed that many people. And that's when it started to be, uh, every weekend with, um, more people but we had <laughs> we had been um in our communities known for our art and and people had asked us for a year what we're doing next and so that was easy to to recruit out of a pool of like 40 uh 40 50 people um to make sure that um every weekend we have enough people to fold and for um and those those were um the mushrooms were getting a little bit even more attention there were they ended up in the smithsonian in uh dc and that that got us more exposure and suddenly like we had so many people friends bringing their friends and, and other friends uh coming to help and uh we had like up to 25 people a weekend work on different things solder things uh weld things cut things um assemble things help with um fundraising uh that was quite a production but it was all people asking us if they could help not us asking them if they could help and when you get up to that many volunteers at what point do you have to begin at what point does managing that that many volunteers become a task in itself <laughs> I, I think last year was a, was probably the point when it tipped over a little bit. I know on a on a on a busy weekend when we were fortunate enough to have a lot of volunteers. Yeah, I mean Jurg and I, particularly Jurg, I'd say, but um, you know, one of us might be spending most of the day explaining the tasks to the various groups of people because. You know, if you think about project management, like if we're building a five-story moving sculpture, which is what, what we built last year, just each subsection needs a handful of volunteers. And the way, the way that that task needs to be done and now fits into the overall thing is something that does need to be managed because people show up and they might not have been there the weekend before. They might not even know what they're working on. They're working on some little wiring harness that like the, they, they can't envision where that goes. And so there, there does tend to be some management, but the lucky thing is because we do have these, um, other people that are kind of leading their section, whether it be electrical or structural, whatever, like those people can also explain what the task at hand is. And so we do it kind of in an ad hoc way. I mean, it certainly started to take more effort last year, but so far it's worked out pretty well that it's, that it's ad hoc. And, and we, we just kind of trust largely that there's going to be enough people there to actually get the work done. I mean, that, that's, that started to stretch us a little bit where we pick an audacious goal and we can only really do it if we raise the money and have enough volunteers to finish it. And we both, we, we kind of just, um, we both just kind of hope and go on good faith that both of those things will happen. We've been really fortunate that they have, but a little bit, it's just setting a goal that people want to contribute to and then just trusting that enough help will show up to make it a reality. Yeah. I mean, we, last year was the first time where we actually, um, needed to stick to a certain timeline because we had things manufactured. We had some aluminum extrusions made in Wisconsin and we had some sand castings done in China and some machining done in China. So we had to be a little bit more careful with the timeline, but uh, the the project management is nothing like we would manage a project in our, in our current jobs. It, it's really <laughs> a lot more organic and uh, and trusting our instincts and, and sort of like certain deadlines that we get from manufacturers and then working backwards and then, and then hoping everything uh, fits together. But uh, I think a little bit of luck was also involved there. Yeah. 
I mean, one thing to remember again is like if if you know if Foldhouse is going to build something for like a contract, then you know and make a new piece that already has a home. Like there's there's a lot of skills we can employ from our uh, from our actual day jobs, you know, in terms of project management to make sure it actually succeeds and lands on time. But of course, with these with these Burning Man pieces of art, like nobody is an employee, nobody's getting paid, so it's really hard to hold people to actually showing up every weekend, every hour. Like we, we have, you know, if they don't want to, they don't have to. And so um, it, it's a little bit different when you're dealing with all volunteers, because again, like we're fortunate to have any of their time. Sure. So, so, so far that's worked, but I, I think our, I think over time we'll probably have a few different ways that we engage in projects and, and treat them appropriately. And for any listeners who would like to uh, volunteer for future Foldhouse projects, is a prerequisite that they're based in San Francisco or can they contribute virtually? I think they have to be in San Francisco, unfortunately, if we if we build our next piece in San Francisco, which I assume we do. But um, it's really um, it's really mostly coming in, connecting and and um, making things. Say, saying that, actually, I think we had some people work remotely. In fact, the our main engineer. Ramey, he uh, he did most of the the mechanical engineering of the sphere, essentially all of it, <laughs> and he was living in Reno at the time, so he was coming for a few weekends to San Francisco. But he was a core me- member; he's a founding member of Foldhouse, so we knew knew exactly what he was able to do. And and Dad w- worked remotely, and we had some other people also pit, uh, chime in um, on some. Um, uh, manufacturing, like a friend of us, he helped us uh, get things made in China. So, so yeah. So it doesn't have to be uh, in uh, in San Francisco, but it would have to be a very specialized task that they could contribute from somewhere else. It's easier in San Francisco. And we've touched on this already a little bit, but I imagine that designing for clients differs wildly from designing something for Burning Man. Uh, can you talk about which parts of this traditional design process cross over and which do not? Yes. Um, so making art is... Uh, the way we design is we uh, we set a vision. We say this is what it's going to be, and it's really like a small group of people who who decide on what the piece is going to be, and uh, and then we and then we go for it, and everybody helps, and and it it's it's just uh, following the vision for design. Um, you have to first understand what is the what is the issue you know what are we trying to solve um, like who's gonna use it and and why and 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 what are what are all the the guardrails rails you know what are the implications what is our client need um, uh, what what fits to their brand um, and and there's it's a whole and a, how much is this gonna cost at the end and and how does it fit in their product line there's all these all these constraints that um, a big team needs to first figure out before we then set the design and then and then engineer it and and with art it's like okay what do we want to do we want to go big bigger more motors more leds um, and and uh and make it interactive and then and then we uh and then we set a goal and then we might reach it or we might not and we modify things as we go but it's um it's really not a uh 
uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot more straightforward. I would I would say than than design. And can you describe the process of physically transporting some of the installations you've created and setting it up? So I I, I think that's actually where the kind of radical self reliance. Um, you could argue that that's that's really where the radical self reliance comes alive, or where no matter what you rely on other entities because we don't own large moving trucks and we don't own heavy equipment. Um, so largely, we move our pieces around with kind of rented trucks. I mean, we you know last year I think we went to Burning Man with two twenty four foot, maybe twenty six foot, uh, you know, big moving trucks, um, and then I think even a sixteen foot truck on top of that. But you, you just literally stack everything in a truck. It's just all human manpower and just get it out there in the desert. And we, we typically arrive pretty early and it's just human power to dump it all on the ground and then start building it. Um, depending on the scale of it, then we rely on um, like a trenching machine. We rely on maybe a telehandler or two to lift up some pieces. Last year, we had a fairly big crane lift. Um, assisted by a couple 40 foot articulating boom lifts. And so it really depends on the scale, but we do sometimes have to rent heavy equipment. And that's actually my favorite part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, but yeah, we move stuff around with trucks. Um, we, we've done some, some, uh, shows internationally. So we came back uh, maybe a couple months ago from Hong Kong doing an art and basil show for Hong Kong. Um, and we've also been to Dubai. And for those shows, the mushrooms of the Sherman Lumen project had to be um, fully crated with custom crates to, to support all the pieces and then either flown or, um, you know, taken by cargo, uh, by container on a cargo ship over there and then taken apart and assembled and all that. And it's quite, it's quite a production. It's certainly easier if you can stick it in a truck and, you know, drive it somewhere in the U S that's, that's definitely a preferred, <laughs> preferred way to move them around. Yeah. But, but everything packs really small. I mean, if you think of radialumia, which is a 50 foot, almost 50 foot diameter sphere, it packs into one and a half, uh, 20 foot sh shipping containers. So, um, so we, that's, that's one of our design principle because we need to store it uh, in, San, in San Francisco where you can imagine how much space costs sure. for storage. And, uh, so all of our pieces are really flat packed. Yeah. In fact, I'd, I'd say there's, there's almost equal space required just to move around like tools and kind of contingency stuff to the radical self-reliant part. You know, we're going to go out into the desert and build a five-story moving building and we've never built it before. Like that one in particular, we'd actually never built before because we don't have a space big enough to do so. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're missing a few bolts, that's kind of a problem. If you're missing, you know, a tool you need to do something, that's, that's an equally big problem. And so you typically, go with as many tools and generators and supplies as you as you can just because it's kind of like landing on another planet and just like well the all you have is what you brought <laughs> and there's another experience that i would imagine is uh, unique to you guys or to other designers that have contributed to burning man which is that uh so most of us industrial designers will spend time working on these projects months or years um it eventually it gets to the point where it's coming out of factories it's on sale people are buying it and we might read reviews about it or run into somebody who owned one, but we're never there at that moment when somebody, to, we're never there to see that moment of discovery on the client's face when they look at our product for the first time. You guys are there rigging this stuff up. What is it like when you plug it in and it starts to go and then you see people walking past? I think that's our favorite moment. It is. It is. That, that's that's sort of like the one moment we're working towards. Like there's a lot. I mean, like you can imagine how much we go through every weekend and working late nights. And then uh, 
when you when you're there it's all it's all set up and you plug it in and the lights go on and 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 people from all over the the desert come and 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 scream out and and and, and look at it when 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 things move they they scream and and, and applaud and 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 then that's that's very <laughs> satisfying the shroom and lumen year um at burning man which i think was 2016 I probably spent half of my nights there the entire week that those were up. I probably spent half the nights just sitting there watching people interact with the mushrooms. And it, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like necessarily an ego thing. I mean, it might be slightly tied to it, but it's not, it's not an ego thing in that, like, you know, you're not pointing out to these people that you help build them, but it's just, you get to relive, like people would just ride up on their bike and have discussions about whether they actually were moving and then one would really move and they would all just like, it's, you know, they'd explode in some sort of emotion. Like it, it really is cool to see people react to this. And I, I think, um, you know, that's part of why I was originally drawn to Burning Man is because people build things that have no reason to exist other than just to entertain and delight other people. And so people don't know what to expect. And some pieces of art, just because it's a really hostile environment, tend to not work. Some of them work great. Some of them, like you just never, some of them you heard about in maybe a preview, an arts preview, and some of them you're seeing for the first time, you didn't know it was going to be there. And so there's a lot of discovery that happens there. And, and those moments where people come across something that's just is something they never thought their eyes would see. And they might have spotted it, you know, a mile away and said, what is that? Like, those look like mushrooms, like, and they can't tell and they're riding their bike. And so I, I, I also kind of live for those, those moments in this. Yeah, it's, it's really like being, being by the flower, by the, by the art piece and, and, and observing people without telling them that you're part of the, the creator team, um, is, is really powerful for us. It's, it's, you know, you overhear the conversation, people trying to figure out like how they work, how, you know, what the mechanism is, like how they light up, what the interaction is. And, and sometimes you inter in, inject yourself in their conversation and explain them how it works. And sometimes you just let them believe that the interaction works in a certain way. People trying to hug the mushrooms and thought that, that that's make them, makes them grow. And, uh, yeah, that, that is a very, um, that is also one of my favorite moments there. That sounds like an incredible experience. Have you guys experienced anything analog to that, uh, during your day job? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Um, yes. Uh, there is an, a not not directly, but indirectly. I mean, some of the products um, that uh, we designed, and like I designed, or uh, was part of a team designed a a Pilates machine, and uh, and then you go into a Pilates studio and. Uh, and people explain you how the machine works and, and, uh, and, and tell you how excited they are about the, the machine and they don't know that you're desi the designer. And, and that's, uh, that is very satisfying. I and mean, you're like super proud. Like, yeah, this is like a cool mechanism. And, and <laughs> it's that, that is, that is cool. Or, or I worked on a chair on a, on a, on a school chair that, um, really had a great impact on, on students um, all over the world. And, and then you hear, sometimes hear them talk about it or you, or you, you know, watch a YouTube video. And, uh, that is, uh, I think that is very similar on the, on the products that, uh, that you're particularly proud of. Like I follow them and, and, uh, and sometimes people talk to me about them without knowing that I worked on them. And, uh, so it's, I think that's in that sense, it's very similar. 
Yeah, I think on, on, on my end, I, I also run into people using um, using Pax products, and they they you know they they hold them dear, and they like a, they kind of cherish these things and love using them, and so there's there's definitely some pride there. Um, you know, and people certainly incorporate them into their lives. I, I think what's a little bit different is that discovery. You know, there there's a certain like expectation when you buy a product, and and you know, in the best case scenario, we delight people and, and give them the kind of experience they're looking for. But it is different from coming across a thing that you just never envisioned you'd see before, and, and you're kind of eliciting wonder in people. And so, you know, I think that's part of why we do this is we get to expand the emotional set that we're exposed to and we get to build this crazy art that doesn't have to serve any purpose other than to delight people um and then also help design and launch products that that meet real you know human needs and and to me together those are things that that just make a fulfilling kind of hobby and work uh earlier you you said something interesting so uh nowadays it seems like um this is not what you had said but nowadays it seems to me like a lot of younger designers uh have uh to be famous as a goal for themselves they would like to be famous designers you mentioned turning the object on and not telling them that you and Jesse had created this can you talk about that a little bit it's the like observing people and and hearing what they really have to say about the product, which is exciting. If they, um, especially if they like it, if they don't like it, you maybe don't want to tell them that you worked on this. But um, but for me, it's 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 really satisfying that enough that I I can say yeah, I designed this, I worked on this, and. Uh, uh, and then just listening to the conversations. I mean, eventually, like, yeah, we we tell people we worked on this, and 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 then we're super proud, and 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 they're super happy that they met the designers. But um, but observing people, I, I get a lot of delight out of just you know being there as as one of them and uh, and listening to the conversations. And um, I mean, the, the famous, yeah, the famous designers, I think that's always been the case. People, when, they, when they're out of school, they're looking at the famous designers and they, um, they want to be one of them and they don't know what it means to be a famous designer. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, and that's uh, sort of a bad starting point with, uh, you know, designing if you, you know, do, some, do some cool stuff that you like and... Um, that other people also like, and then and then go from there. But yeah, fame fame comes later if you want to. But yeah, I have no aspiration for that. Uh, and Jesse, how about you? Do you uh, see some value in remaining anonymous while people evaluate your designs initially? I think initially, like I like the work to to speak for itself. You know, if if it's not if the art piece is not eliciting wonder or um, you know some sort of like delight and discovery or those things, then it kind of doesn't matter who made it. Um, and so, and the same with a product. Like if it doesn't actually meet a real need or solve a problem, then you know, or, or actually call you know create delight itself. And then what's it doesn't kind of matter where it came from or who created it. So. Um, I, I like for the, the work to speak for itself and get whatever reaction it naturally gets. And then like Jurg, I, you know, would kind of sometimes come out of, come out of the shadows and answer a question because people always have questions and they're debating how it works. And yeah, you do create additional delight sometimes for people to know that they got to meet the person who made this thing. Um, so, so sometimes I would do that, but I, I do think that, 
you know, the point in, in what we make and largely these designs are kind of Jurg's aesthetic design. Um, they, they should stand on their own, you know, and I think, I think the whole reason we create these like out of scale objects are just because there's a weird, it, it causes you to reflect on yourself in a weird sense of scale. Like the mushrooms are way out of scale. The flowers are way out of scale. The, this, that five story thing we built last year is a protozoa. So it's like a sub millimeter thing. We made it five stories tall. And there's this, this weird sense that people have when they encounter objects like that. And so I, I like that to be what, what leads. And at this point, you guys have exhibited at Burning Man three times. Yeah, we've had three. We've had three projects out in the playa, the main kind of expanse of the desert. It's called the playa. So uh, Bloom and Lumen, then Shroom and Lumen, and then Radialumia. But we've 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 shown other things at Burning Man. We had a like an origami um, yurt tea house thing that we put two or three stories up. That was a great place to watch the sunrise. Um, we, we built that large tower that you're described. So we certainly built other things that people could enjoy and that we contributed to the event with. But but yeah, we've had three main showings there. And then at this point, way more showings of those same projects, um, not at Burning Man. Okay. Uh, but it's fair to say that you guys are Burning Man veterans. I'd, I'd say so at this point. Okay, and that being the case, let's say that you encountered uh, a group of designers who were thinking about designing something for Burning Man and came to you for advice. What kinds of things could you say to them? Keep it simple. It's things designing for the desert um, with the hot temperatures and the dust and the wind. Uh, so many things break. Everybody wants to design something mechanical and and moving, and 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 things break. So, so the the simpler and the stronger, the better, I would say, and the bigger, make it big but strong. Yeah, I think I think the first question is kind of whether they've been or not, because there's a certain like once you've been, you you then have a sense of the thing that Eric is talking about, and you also have an appreciation for what works and what doesn't. There's like a, a nuance and detail that is completely lost in the desert because everything gets covered up with dust and all colors go away. It just everything looks taupe. <laughs> but there's a certain way that light really is appealing out there and, and a certain scale is appealing. And so you, you kind of get a sense, I think, like anyone who designs a piece for a public setting or a gallery or whatever you have. A, once you have a sense of where it's going to be, you're like, okay, now I kind of get it. And then what you're just saying, like, yeah, you really oversimplify. And anytime I hear someone saying, oh, we're just going to build that part in the desert or, or we'll fix that part then, like, that's a, a warning sign because the desert will present you with enough new problems to solve. If you're, if you're expecting to complete construction or to, to solving, you know, to solve existing problems while you're out there, that's, that tends to be kind of a warning sign because it's, things just get harder, not easier. Yeah. There's also, the like the best designs or the best art pieces there are the the ones that really play with the environment so there's a lot of wind and then there's dust during the day mostly and you know if you have if you have if your art piece moves with the with the wind or or embraces the dust you know or or you know reflects the light in a certain way those are those are really good pieces so study study the environment and figure out how can i work with the elements rather than 
against them and uh, and how do I because this the, the pieces are there during the day and at night and some of the pieces they're amazing at night but um, you know kind of uninspiring to the during the day and that's fine if you if you want that but I think about how it looks during the day and think about how it looks at night and at night there's a lot of light out there by now so a lot of light competition i want to say so so make sure it's um you know it's bright enough and it's unique enough but i, I would also say on a kind of a, a less challenging note to just just do it i know it's like cheesy but um you know it, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to get these things to um to, to be designed and installed, but you know, you, you don't have to go crazy big. And if it's your first year, like just make something that you put out there for people to enjoy. Like you'll, you'll get something out of it. You'll experience the joy of watching people come up to your piece. And there's, you know, there's hundreds of art pieces out there that range from really big, you know, multi-story structures down to like little intricate things. And, you know, people wander around and look for those things and take pictures of them and play with them on their own. And like, not everything has to be huge. So I, I certainly wouldn't let the lack of either human resources or the kind of material capital to make something like stop you. There's, there's lots of delight to be found in, in smaller experiences and, and smaller um, objects. That's true. Start smaller and then go bigger. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great advice, not just for Burning Man, but design in general. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's also part of how we did this. Like it, it's, we actually had no intention of doing any of this. We just, you know, what one thing that I think design thinking teaches you and certainly people practice at IDEO is to like, you just have an idea and just start making something like get it off of paper. Just start making a little model and then a prototype and just solving problems one by one. And it doesn't matter that you don't know how it's going to all finish and how it'll get there. Like you, you kind of you know, it's a part of design thinking is about just knowing that if you go through these steps and just start making it like there's a pretty good chance you're going to get there to the end. And so that's the same conviction we have about this art. Like you're just draws the thing and we noodle on it for a bit. And then we just start making pieces. And like I said, we've never even fully assembled the thing we made last year until we got to Burning Man. But somehow there's this conviction by solving all the problems and going through all the steps and just continuing to make stuff that you'll get there. And so that, that's the thing. Just start. Well, that's great advice. And I know that you guys were very busy and are not going to be at Burning Man this year, uh, or at least exhibiting on the playa. Um, but what will we see next from you guys, whether individually or through Fold House? So what you won't see from us is something bigger <laughs> than Radio Lumia. Um, for now, we have a bunch of us had kids last year also and, and have like different jobs. And, and so, uh, we, Radio Lumia was really exhausting. Um, so, um, we won't go bigger. What, what we might see next year or the year after is, uh, more something at the scale of our first piece, um, uh, Bloom and Lumen, and uh, but maybe more of them. Um, but uh, yeah, something small and then but um, scaled through numbers rather than size. I think <laughs> time will tell. Uh, Jesse, do you have anything to add to that, or was did your coverage? No, that's about right. I mean, I you know part of the. So we, um, you know, Radio Lumia was, was a huge challenge for us. But one of the reasons I think we don't want to repeat that necessarily is that while we design these things for Burning Man, it gives us a great deadline to, to have something done by and to rally around and a big like unveiling. 
it's part of the reason we spend so much effort is we like to also have people see this work more broadly. So we like people, you know, we, we did a showing of Bloom and Lumen in Arizona and it was at the city hall centennial in San Francisco and, you know, Sherman Lumen's been to Dubai. And like, those are, those are things we like because like people get to experience that. You see little kids walking around and experiencing the art and reacting to it. Like we get joy there too. And when you build something as large as Radiolumia, where's that going to be? You know, it's five stories tall. It takes a week with, you know, 10 people to build. So the options for showing that again are, are they exist, but they're, they're much more limited. And so we, we do want to optimize around making something that can kind of create these moments of discovery and joy even outside of the playa. And that's why we're, we're probably going to build, you know, multiples of something much, much smaller because it's, it's a more scalable approach. And is there any chance Foldhouse uh, will evolve into its own product design firm, or are you guys determined to keep it as an art collective? You know, we we talked about it. It's, um, uh, I mean, it, it might one day. the The beauty of Foldhouse is that it's a community uh, driven um, art collective that actually needs a lot of input and. And we want to maintain the community aspect and um, having a um, a company that needs to make profit in, under the same roof as a company that 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 that's just a community driven company it is it is something to be figured out. It, I, I does some people do it at for Burning Man actually, but it's hard. And so, um, yeah, we'll see what time brings. Uh, and Jesse, did you have anything to add? Or? No, I think that's the, the right approach. I mean, we, we, we've we relied so much on volunteers. I mean, we're obviously volunteers ourselves, but we, we wouldn't want to lose the being able to learn from all these people and have them come in and, and learn skills themselves under the weird time pressure and uh, of having to you know, ship something for a commercial client um, and make a profit. Like, I, I think that, that would be a tension we'd have a hard time resolving. And so we'd, we'd want to get that right before we went in that direction. Uh, and if you did have a project that uh, required putting out a call for volunteers uh, in future, how could a designer following you guys, how would they be aware of that? Is that something you'd post news of? We will probably post it on foldhouse.com. People can also email us on um, foldhouse. <laughs> What's our email, Jesse? Foldhouse at gmail.com? Yes. And by the way, that's, that's fold, F-O-L-D-H-A-U-S dot com. Well, Jesse and Yuri, thank you so much for speaking with us uh, and best of luck to you with your future adventures. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been great talking. 